once again to the book of Matthew, to the Sermon on the Mount. But before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the blessing of little voices, singing your praise, singing your truth. And I pray now, Father, that you would help us to be led into your truth, to hear it, to believe it, to be changed by it. And I pray, Father, that you would help me to get out of the way of it. We thank you, Father, for, again, the opportunity to gather around your word, to be taught by your unchanging, eternal word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I know we, I've, I've kind of mentioned this pretty much every week we've been here in the Sermon on the Mount, but uh, I think it's very important that we understand the context of the Sermon on the Mount so that we can understand the content of the Sermon on the Mount. And we remind ourselves that what Jesus is not doing here in the Sermon on the Mount is instructing us of, on how to build a better society. There are some out there who do teach that uh, the Sermon on the Mount is really just some guidelines to uh, to how to live or have good community or, or uh, how to build a great country. That's not what he's doing here. He's also not doing, what he's not doing here is trying to give us commands that if we would obey them, uh, we would earn our way to heaven. He says at the very beginning, I have come to fulfill the law. And the Bible teaches that our salvation is found in his living the perfect life and us hearing uh, the gospel, believing and trusting in his perfect life to save us. So this is not about you and me earning our way to heaven. This is also uh, not a situation where Jesus is changing what God has said in the Old Testament. He is not presenting to us some form of, uh, of new theology. In fact, what he's doing is he's correcting what has been corrupted by the religious teachers. He's telling us, explaining to us, the spirit and the letter of the law so that we can understand it. The third thing he's doing is he's teaching with the expectation, uh, we talked at the very beginning of this sermon, that he is speaking to his disciples. He is speaking to believers. He's speaking to those who claim to follow him. And it's clear that his expectation is that those who claim to follow Jesus would obey him. We saw at the beginning here that this section of the Sermon on the Mount is about this. The expectation that Jesus has for you and me is that we or his people would be a people who practice perfect love. We talked last week about what it means to love or or to be angry with our brother or with another person uh, and how we are to deal with that as God's people. Uh, This week, uh, we continue on with that, that, uh, that premise that he is telling us how to live or how to love perfectly. Now, the other tool he uses here is to set up a series of contrasts. The contrast between what the religious leaders taught and what he was teaching. For example, last week, religious leaders said, you can be a good person. You are okay with God as long as you have not murdered someone. That's a pretty easy standard. I don't want to raise of hands, but I'm pretty sure nobody here has murdered someone. And so that's a pretty low bar, and they were setting the bar low uh, so that they could consider themselves good people. 
Jesus explains, no, that's actually not God's standard. God's standard is that we should not be a people who have even one unguarded word come out of our mouths in anger. Now he's going to do the same thing with this concept of love and lust. Now, the point that he's trying to make in this contrast is that uh, there is the actions of the body and there are the matters of the heart. And he is clarifying that the matters of the heart, the issues of the heart, matter just as much to God as what is going on on, in your body. What you're doing with your hands is just as important to God as what is going on in your heart. Now that concept, the concept that God is just as concerned about what's in your heart as what is in your life, tortured a man by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther is rightly called the father of the Protestant Reformation. And a couple of weeks ago, I told you, this is the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, The Protestant Reformation is a form of protest and demand for reform. That's where you get Protestant Reformation. Protestant comes from the word protest. It was a uh, 500 years ago, Martin Luther took his 95 theses or his 95 points of contrast with the Roman Catholic Church, nailed it on the door in Wittenberg, and thus began what is known as the Protestant Reformation. And today, we as Protestants gather here this morning as a form of protest, as a a form of demanding reform or the recapturing of the gospel in the Roman Catholic Church. That, That is what it means to be a Protestant. But this concept, that what matters uh, what going, what's going on in your heart matters to God just as much as in your life bothered Martin Luther significantly. Now here in our Bible, Jesus is going to, again, approach this subject of lust and love. And really, uh, if you read the text, it kind of unfolds like a soap opera. It unfolds in the sense of you have here lust and adultery, you have divorce, remarriage, We've heard things like this in songs and books and movies. In fact, you can read about this in other places in your Bible. And he walks through this scenario to help us understand, or he wants us to understand, the right perspective on the issue of lust or the right perspective on sexual sin. You notice the title of the sermon is The Seriousness of Sexual Sin. And here's what he wants. I want to break down this perspective that he gives us into three parts. Number one, the first thing he wants us to understand is that all sexual sin starts in the heart. All sexual sin starts in the heart. Notice with me verse 28. I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, let me clarify two things. First of all, just because Jesus uses the example of a man lusting after a woman does not mean that sexual sin is simply limited to men. We know that is not the case in experience. We know that is not the case in Scripture. It is a consistent pattern in the Bible to uh, many times use male terms even when Jesus is speaking to a mixed group. So let's not get caught up in thinking that this is just a male issue or this is just a man issue because that's not the point here. Jesus is trying to help us understand, again, that what is going on here starts in the hearts. Now, go back to verse 27. 
And you can see again that he is making a contrast with the religious teaching of that day. The religious teaching of that day was, as long as you do not commit adultery, you are a good person. Religious teaching always limits itself to outward conformity in some way. So as long as you don't commit adultery, you're considered a good person. And Jesus says something far more radical. He says that you and I can sin without saying a word, without taking an action. Once again, we're reminded that our heart is often miles ahead of our body when it comes to the issue of sin. That it always starts with the matter of the heart. But in fact, Jesus here also defines lust for us. He says, uh, to lust after her hath committed. The idea there, the word there, is with lustful intent. The idea to lust uh, is very, very similar to the feeling of curiosity. But this, in this case, it is the desire. The first thing is the I see. You can do the same thing with food. But the I see... And it has a desire or a curiosity about what it sees. And so we have this imagination begin. And from that imagination, there is action. There is suddenly an intent. There is a manipulation of the environment. That is the idea of intent, is to manipulate the environment. So he sees and becomes curious. He begins to manipulate his environment in order to fulfill this curiosity. And so he begins to perhaps manipulate his environment finding, as I said a couple of weeks ago, reasons to call her, finding ability to perhaps be alone with her in inappropriate situations, certainly wanting to encourage in her inappropriate feelings, but the idea is from his imagination to his actions. And the sad reality is when it goes from imagination to actions, many times the follow-through then is a regrettable outward sin of adultery. But as I mentioned here, what Jesus is pointing out, and what we would find as we read through Scripture, is that the issue of lust has a lot in common with the sin of gluttony. There can be such a thing as sinful curiosity. You can maybe compare it to, and I'm sorry if this offends somebody, you can compare it to the compulsive need to check your phone. To continue, I can't set it down for more than a few seconds. This is constant, uncontrollable curiosity. I gotta know. I gotta know. I gotta know. That same rhythm is what drives the heart to go into lust. I have a untamed curiosity. And from that untamed curiosity comes an untamed imagination. And from that untamed imagination comes untamed outward actions. Resulting as we said, for our, bo- or for our heart to be miles ahead of our body when it comes to fulfilling our sinful desires. Now, I want to point out something else here. In this illustration that Jesus uses, clearly at least one of these people, uh, or if not both, are married. Now, I understand that uh, the majority of the people that Jesus is probably talking to are likely married. But let's not again get bogged down into the idea that this is only a problem when it comes to being married. That that it would be absurd for us to think that if you're single, you somehow have the freedom to lust all you want. The point that Jesus is making here, as I said, is that all sin, all sexual sin, always starts in the heart. 
It always starts with that untamed curiosity. It always starts with that untamed imagination. Now, most of you know that Martin Luther was born in Germany. You may not know this, but his first love in life was actually to be a lawyer. And as a hobby, Martin Luther, this probably doesn't sound like much of a hobby, uh, but he was very much interested in philosophy. Aristotle, uh, when we consider the Augustine, for example. But in being a lawyer and delving into all this philosophy, Martin Luther felt very unfilled. He, he felt like he could not find the answers for the difficulties in his life, and so he then turned to the church. And he became an Augustinian monk and began to study the Bible. Those were the only people, monks were really the only people who had access to Scripture in uh, and understanding it and being able to read it on a regular basis. And as I said, Martin Luther came to the realization that God's expectation for him was not only to have a clean life, but that he would have a clean heart. And this so frustrated Martin Luther. And the reason for that is here he is a monk. He's already kind of isolated himself from society, taking away a number of temptations. Yet he still found, for example, he still found lust in his heart. Martin Luther would whip himself. He would go and make all manner of vows. He would uh, make vows of silence and vows of poverty and vows of hunger. And he would try all of these things to try and tame the issue of his heart. And it drove him crazy because he constantly, no matter what he did, he could not tame the lust of his heart. And Martin Luther came to a place where he began to believe that perhaps his heart was too corrupt to ever be saved. Now, there's a long history in the church of being able to understand the difference between beauty, between attraction, and lust. You can see that in a number of medieval arts uh, that is uh, just absolutely gorgeous and beautiful and often will use uh, parts of the human body that are not uh, perhaps normally on display. Uh, and so the, the, the early church understood this concept, but we, we've lost it. Because we live in a society that takes beauty and takes attraction and immediately pushes it together and says, okay, here's love, and now immediately we've got to add lust. And so let me use this example. So you take a young lady who goes to a sleepover. Maybe she's been having a difficult time. She's with her friend. She's encouraged. She's laughed. She's just... She enjoys the being around her other female friend, and they are uh, they, they love each other. The world tells her that those feelings of love for her friend, if they're going to really mean something, mean to need to be transferred into some form of lustful intent that they need to uh, embrace in an intimate form. And so now she's confused. We live in a world that looks at David and Jonathan and says, oh, look, that's got to be a homosexual relationship right there. The Bible even says that David loved Jonathan more than he loved any other woman. But that's because we live in a time that has the inability to take love and separate it out from lust. And we have to understand we li- that's scary as a parent, or for most of us who are parents or grandparents, it's scary as we look to our young ones and go, they, they just don't have that concept in uh, in their regular life, not being reinforced, that there's a difference between love and lust. But we also have to remind ourselves as parents and grandparents what Martin Luther found out. And all the outward actions and all the outward things that we can do will not tame the heart. A good example of this is this. 
you may remember a couple of years ago, there was a controversy concerning the Duggar family. They're the uh, 19 or 20, are they up to 21 now and counting? Uh, but, but they had an older son. He looked the part, acted the part. He was on the TV show. He was considered just a wonderfully fine young man. But over the course of several months, it came that he, uh, he had had an affair. It came out that he had uh, manipulated one of his younger sister's friends into uh, committing some lewd acts with him. And here is a family who looks the part of conservative, who acts the part of conservative, who does all the conservative things you can possibly do, and it comes out that one of his sons or one of their sons has this issue. And what it does is just simply remind us that what Martin Luther found out is that we can do all of these outward things, but it will do nothing to tame the heart. Because all sexual sins are birthed and given life first in the heart. Second thing he wants us to understand this morning is this that sexual sin is severely destructive. Sexual sins are severely destructive. Look with me at verses 29 to 30. He makes two statements one about an eye and one about a hand. And he walks through this process. He says, okay, if you've got an eye and it causes you a problem, you need to take it out uh, and throw it away. Because if you do not do this, you might find yourself in the pit of hell or in the fires of hell. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, you need to cut it off because if you fail to do that, you might find yourself in the fires of hell. Now, we have to first of all remind ourselves that it is clearly Jesus is speaking metaphorically. He is not teaching the cutting off of the hand or the gouging out of an eye can deal with the issues of the heart. What he's doing here is using a teaching uh, method where he shows the severity of failing so that we understand the severity of the problem. He wants us to see and understand that this is, in fact, a big deal. He is using severe language so we understand that this is a big deal. Now, I get asked this question actually quite a bit. Aren't sexual sins just like all other sins? While they are in a sense that they are equal before God and deserving of judgment and damnation, but the Bible is very clear that the answer in a reality sense in a day-to-day sense, that the answer is no. That sexual sin is not like all other sins. In fact, the Bible is clear about the fact that sexual sins are unusually destructive both to an individual and to the community. Twice in the New Testament, the Bible clearly draws a line between sexual immorality and spiritual health. Twice does the Bible draw a line between sexual actions, both appropriate and inappropriate, to your spiritual health. And this line has been so clear throughout church history, we have some pretty weird stuff show up if you go back and look through church history. For example, this is why your average local priest is celibate. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that celibacy can actually draw you closer to God. Paul refutes that in 1 Corinthians. There, are, there have been groups out there that have, for, that have called themselves Christian, forbidding anybody to marry. Paul would refute that again in 1 Corinthians. There have been those out there who go the other way. Well, if, if, if sexuality and spirituality are so closely tied together, maybe what we need to do is practice free love. And so there have been groups like that. But Jesus' point here is this. Where you find corrupt spiritual practices, you will find corrupt spirituality. And where you find corrupt spirituality, you will always find corrupt sexual practices. The two are 
hand in hand. They always, sexual immorality is always destructive. And this is why it must be confronted. A number of lists of sins in the New Testament, you know, sexual immorality or forms of sexual immorality are always listed, oftentimes, are the first ones on the list. They are severely destructive, cannot be dealt with haphazardly, and without concern for your spiritual reality. Now, Luther, and we remember we talked about John Huss a couple of weeks ago, Luther noticed the same thing that Huss noticed is that there was a great deal of sexual perversion, not only within the clergy, but also within the powerful politicians. That while the clergy would get up on Sunday, or they would make pronouncements and give out uh, orders that people should not act a particular way uh, in the sexual realm, that behind closed doors, because these men had power, many of them were practicing evil things. This is nothing new. Sadly, we probably have all read stories or heard stories about clergy in our day whose whole lives and ministries have been destroyed by finding out that those men practiced forms of sexual immorality. And sadly, we can look at news reports and we can read, we can read news reports and we can see that many politicians who have set themselves up as pro-family or pro-family values have been caught later on involved in all manner of sexual immorality. But the difference between Luther and Huss was this. Huss had the boldness to get up and begin to talk about it. Luther, again, struggling with the issues of his own heart and struggling and finding himself unworthy to speak against those issues. He felt himself too unrighteous to stand before these men because even though he could see what they were doing, he knew the same reality was sitting in his heart. And what we learn here is that the lust of the heart, the lust of any type, must be dealt with and think about the analogy that Jesus uses here. We can think of perhaps the Civil War. We can think about, maybe you've seen a Civil War movie or read a Civil War book, but the reality was if there was any grave injury to a limb, an arm or a leg, the physicians on the battlefield really had one choice, and that was to do what? To cut it off. They were concerned about infection and concerned about gangrene. You see, the, the, the issue was that if they could close it, that was great, but if they couldn't, they couldn't do anything with it. They didn't have medicines for, or they didn't have the medicines they needed to deal with infections, to deal with gangrene. And so there really was the only option of cutting it off or dying. And Jesus is essentially using the same analogy, that there must be some way of extreme measure to deal with it because it is so severely destructive. Now, I'm about to say something. I want to qualify it this way that there are exceptions to what I'm about to say. But many times the exception proves the rule. In my five years as a youth pastor and in my ten-plus years now in ministry, I can tell you that almost to the T, every young lady who has gone through the process of being involved in premarital intimacy has struggled with mental health issues later. The reality is I have sat across my, uh, in my desk, not only here, but in other places, across from men who have been dealing or been addicted to pornography. And here's a reality that they have to face. That sexual sin will toddlerize your emotional health. You will find that men who are, this is, I, I hate to put it this way, this is why many times they are easy to spot is because sexual sin is so devastating. It doesn't create, we used to think that pornography creates rapists and 
all sorts of violent men. But the reality is what it does is toddlerize them. It makes it difficult for them. Psychologists now understand it makes it difficult for them to interact with women. It makes it difficult for them to maintain some sort of physical health. It toddlerizes them. And that's the destruction that we find in Scripture. For example, with David's son. David's son, he had a son who was in love with, the Bible says, was in love with his half-sister. And wanted to be with her, and so eventually he manipulates his environment. He goes ahead and he, he rapes her. And after he fulfills his lust, the Bible says now he hates her more than he ever loved her. And immediately the family is torn apart. Now we have a brother who's mad at another brother, and they're going to kill each other. We have a sister who is now considered shamed and cannot, uh, cannot, will probably never marry. And we have this whole dysfunction in the family that eventually results in David being driven out of Jerusalem. The point here that Jesus is making by using this metaphor again is this idea that sexual sin is severely destructive. But as I said, the other problem here is this. You can throw out your computer. You can throw out your phone. You can throw out your iPad. You can seclude yourself into a room for many, many weeks. You can change what you're listening to, change what you're watching. But the reality is the frustration sets in because nothing changes in the heart. And that brings us to the third thing. And that is this, that there is freedom from sexual sin. Sexual sin, all sexual sin starts in the heart. Number two, sexual sin is, is severely destructive. Number three, there is freedom from sexual sin. Look with me at verses 31 to 32. These two verses clearly belong with verses 27 to 30. Now, religious leaders, they had an answer for this. And here was their answer for lust. Okay? We'll just follow the story this way. Okay, so guy goes out, sees woman, uh, it, it has this... Uh, un, unprotected curiosity begins to manipulate. Perhaps they begin to flirt with one another. The religious leaders say, okay, if you're married or she's married, here's what you need to do. If you think this is going somewhere, you need to put away your wife so you divorce her and she needs to divorce him and you guys need to get married. That way there's no actual adultery happening because you're married. And when you're married, that isn't adultery. And so you're good to go. What Jesus is saying here is no. The motivation to divorce, in order to be intimate with another woman, actually compounds the sin. Because not only do you lust, and not only do you get a divorce, and not only do you remarry, but you are still committing adultery. Now, Jesus makes an exception in verse 32. He says, except on the grounds of sexual immorality... Uh, there's been a lot of debate of what he means right here. I actually think it's quite simple if you just follow the language of the text. Several times God, Jesus has used that word adultery, adultery. This is adultery in your heart, or this is when you commit adultery. He's used that word, but he changes the word when he gets to sexual immorality. He, cha- he calls it fornication, or he calls it sexual immorality. He doesn't call it adultery. That's in the original text in most of your English translations. So if he was continuing to talk about adultery, if the exception for divorce was when somebody commits adultery, it would have been a lot easier for him to continue to use that word. But he doesn't. What he uses is a word that is the general description of all the sexual codes in the book of Leviticus. 
And what he's saying is the only exception you have here for divorce and it not be a sin and it not turn into adultery is if the first marriage was not legitimate to begin with. For example, Leviticus, you were forbidden to uh, marry people who were too close in relation to you. You could not marry, obviously, someone of the same gender. You were not allowed to marry somebody uh, in order to gain wealth or power or position. So before God, even if those two people were in church, got married, before the pastor, God is saying those marriages would not be legitimate in my sight. So the only exception Jesus is giving here is if there is a divorce from a marriage that was not legitimate to begin with. And you see the disciples understood this later because he's going to use the same example and they're going to respond to him like, then who should even get married? If the room for divorce is that small, why would we ever get married? But they even missed the point. And Jesus points this out to them. The point he's making is this. Is that the problem of lust cannot be dealt with through the avenue of divorce. This means one more thing. Let me, uh, let me say it this way. I don't believe that the intention of this text is for Jesus to close the gap and forbid divorce altogether. Paul is going to clarify this in 1 Corinthians, the understanding that the reasons for divorce and whether or not it's legitimate before the eyes of God have everything to do with motivation. And secondly, the issue of remarriage. I do not think that Jesus is preaching here or teaching here that remarriage in all cases is some continual form of adultery. Because again, the Bible is going to clarify in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is going to clarify this point, that it is possible to remarry when the, when the marriage covenant has been broken. And so the idea here is what I want you to understand before we get distracted into issues I know that many people are passionate about when it comes to divorce and remarriage, I think there's a narrow understanding of what Jesus is saying here. The religious leaders were saying that divorce was the answer for lust. And Jesus is saying, no, that is not the answer for lust. In fact, if you do that, you're going to compound the problem. Now, Martin Luther... Again, struggled with all of this stuff in his heart until he came to an understanding of the gospel. While he continued to sin in his heart, he did not find himself hopeless. He came to realize it was going to be God's grace, his kindness through the, uh, through the sacrifice of his son that was going to save him. Not with him whipping himself or fasting or making vows of poverty and silence. He came to understand that it was the hearing and the believing and the trusting in Jesus alone that would save him. It was repenting and believing that Jesus paid it all. That the blood covers it all. That Jesus was the one who was going to rescue him. And Martin Luther realized that this was not what was taught in the Roman Catholic Church. And it became his motto, his creed, uh, and the creed of all the reformers of his day, that through faith alone, by grace alone, following the Bible alone, to the glory of God alone, became his cry, became his plea. And that brings me to this point. We go back again to verses 29 to 30. And the extremes that must be taken. And the ultimate idea here is in order to find freedom from sexual sin, this must happen. There must be the destruction and death of the individual. That is what is required in Leviticus if there was sexual morality. Every form of sexual morality required death. David, though, 
When Nathan, the prophet Nathan, confronts David in his sexual immorality, David requ- uh, describes the conviction of God as the breaking of bones, as someone sick with cancer and having had it tear at his body. He says, you broke me, you crushed me. The Apostle Paul says, that how did he go from being a murderer of Christians to a preacher of the gospel? He says, I died. And now Christ lives in me. Theologians for hundreds of years have had a word for this. Brokenness. Freedom from a sinful heart attitude, particularly in the area of lust, must come through the process of brokenness. This is not something a man or a woman can do to themselves. They must be broken, shattered, crumbled as David was, as Paul was, as others were. They must be broken. Conversion in the Bible is described as the death of one person and the birth of another. When we pray the prodigal, you go to the uh, the Psalms, and you find these imprecatory prayers, prayers for the destruction of the person. Well, there is the old school destruction of somebody actually, of God actually taking the life of a person. But the New Testament describes a new type of the destruction of a person, and as that is through the conversion to Christ. And the hope we see is that every time these sexual sins are listed in the New Testament, They are almost always followed by the phrase, and such were some of you. That it is possible to be a former drunkard. It is possible to be a former thief, a former adulterer, a former reveler, a former extortioner, a former sexual deviant. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were pardoned. It is not us who join him in our salvation. It is him who saves us. We must be broken. No man, and I've dealt primarily with men, who has ever had an addiction to pornography or a difficulty in the issues of sexual lusts has ever been able to beat it without the brokenness of God. Now Martin Luther eventually became a thorn in the side of the Catholic Church. He even tried to kill him. In fact, there's a movie out there by the name of Luther. You won't hear me say this very much, but this movie by the name of Luther, just an incredible movie. I have it. If you want it, you should see it. The things he went through, the stands he took. He did eventually marry a former nun, finding that freedom in Christ meant that he could marry. And again, for the rest of his life, he was devoted to the creed, to the cry of faith alone, through grace alone, by Jesus alone, understood in the Bible alone, to the glory of God alone. What is the point here? For us, if the devastating effects of sin will devour us individually and devour our communities then if we are going to practice perfect love, the issue of lusts of our heart must be dealt with. We must become a people who are unafraid of praying. If you are that person, if you are the person who struggles with this, you must become unafraid of asking God to break you. Say, Lord, I cannot be free of this myself. It must mean the destruction of my body, the destruction of my life. You need to break me. And for those who you know who might be struggling in this area. That must be your prayer for them. Lord, they must be broken. The wonderful thing, though, is that 
Even though freedom comes from the total destruction of the person, that destruction is coming from the gracious hand of Jesus. At one point in the Old Testament, David commits a sin, and God comes to him and says, David, you have to choose. You have to choose between your enemies who are going to come and they're going to defeat you in battle or my hand against you. And David says, I will always choose your hand against me. I will always choose your destructive hand because I know of your grace. Do not be going looking for anywhere else. Do not go anywhere else looking for an answer to the difficulties of lust of the heart. Look to Jesus. Father, I do pray for those who do struggle with the sin of lust, the untamed curiosity, who struggle with the, uh, the inability to control the impulses in this area, perhaps many, many years uh, of habit-forming uh, actions. I do pray, Father, I pray for brokenness. I pray they would be shattered by the rock who is Jesus Christ. Knowing that your grace is amazing. And I pray for us as a church. That we'd be a people who would be unafraid of praying for brokenness. To be, to be set free from these issues of the heart. And Father, no matter what is in our past. No matter what we have done before. Whether it is divorce or adultery. Your grace is greater than all of our sin. We thank you for this and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.